This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You will always get a moment where in a building of 40 units, 50 units, 100 units, there's going to be that one tenant, that number, a handful of tenants who are going to tell you, es que yo no quiero problemas. I don't want problems, right? Like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to organize. I don't want to fight back. I don't want problems. And my job as an organizer and I say this quite point blank to folks is to say, the problem is already here for you. The problem is that you already can't afford your rent, that you're living in, in horrible conditions and that your landlord's harassing you. The problem is that if you don't resolve this, you're going to end up either on the streets or having to move to a more expensive apartment far away from your social networks. What are you going to do when you can no longer afford to pay the rent that you're paying right now in a community where all the rents are going higher every single year? Hello, and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. All right, folks, uh, welcome to the Hegemonicon. Um, This episode is part of our ongoing series on what we're building, uh, which is the most noteworthy organizations and initiatives on the U.S. left today. And as I've been saying recently, when we talk about foundational economic relationships under capitalism, several of these relationships really stand out. Of course, there are bosses and workers, there are landlords and tenants, and there are creditors, and debtors. And these are all ways that those above, the capitalists, squeeze those of us below for profit. And they're also all sites where some form of class consciousness can be developed. Um, In the last month, we've spoken with Alex Hahn about the state of the labor movement. We've spoken with John Washington about the state of the tenant movement. And this week, my guest is Renee Moya of the Debt Collective and LA Tenants Union. We'll be continuing the conversation about tenant organizing as well as digging deeper into debtor organizing. Uh, Renee, I'm really glad to have you on the show. Um, Why don't you begin by uh, introducing yourself to our listeners? Again, my name is Rene Moya. I was born and raised and I live again here in LA, um, where I have been organizing as a tenant organizer for a number of years now, but also prior to that, um, did some work on homelessness and that space, right? And and really the connection between um, housing issues and homelessness. Um, I am the tenant power coordinator with the Debt Collective, the nation's first debtors union. I'm sure we will talk a little bit more about what that means. Um, but you know, I have I primarily am working on um, our tenant power uh, program, which we will kind of dig into right now to to talk a little bit more right about what the connection between debt uh, and tenant organizing looks like. Uh, prior to this, I was the tenant. Uh, you know, the the statewide coordinator for ACE, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, where I worked a lot on housing policy at the state level here in California. Um, I was the 
the campaign director for a statewide ballot measure, the Proposition 21 campaign that would have expanded rent control in California in 2019-2020. Uh, and then prior to that, I also, again, worked on a previous campaign for rent control, uh, have worked on multiple uh, rent control initiatives, not just at the state level, but also local uh, fights for rent control, both at the ballot, but also, um, you know, legislative ones through city councils, through county boards of supervisors. Um, and I've just been organizing in and around ho- housing, um, you know, on tenants' rights, uh, tenant protection um, ordinances on trying to make sure that a broken, uh, I don't know, emergency rental assistance program um, doesn't necessarily uh, do more harm than good. Um, for a number of years now, uh, I'm very excited to have been basically allowed to work for the Debt Collective um, over the past two years. And I'm really looking forward to deepening that connection really between the struggle to cancel all of our debts, yes. But I think really I'm more interested in even going beyond that for a world with universal public and reparative goods for all, because ultimately that is the only way in which we're going to be able to solve all of these connected uh, crises that we're confronting at the moment. Thank you. Um, well, there's a there's a million and one questions that we need to ask you about rent control for our fight for rent control here in Michigan, because we're, we're working to get a, a statewide preemption uh, against local rent control policies uh, removed. And if we could get it removed, then that would just be the beginning, of course, of fighting for it at, the, at, a, at a local level. So maybe we can come back around to that. But I want to begin by asking um, a, a very basic question. You are the, the tenant power organizer for the Debt Collective. That implies um, some kind of connection between debt and tenancy. So why don't you just begin by r- explaining that uh, connection for us? For sure. And, you know, at, at the Debt Collective, we oftentimes talk about the, the this idea, this notion that tenants unions are a form of debtors union. In fact, in some ways, they are the oldest, most successful form of debtors union. Now, what do we mean by that? You, one only has to look at what uh, evictions and the threat of an eviction looks like and how it affects us and, in fact, what causes the threat of an eviction to see really that relationship uh, laid bare. The vast majority of evictions, and this has always been true, by the way, uh, the, the vast majority of evictions that we experience at, at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, in fact, at the international level, the vast majority of evictions are as a result of a tenant being unable to pay their rent. In other words, if you conceptualize it a little bit differently, rent debt is what drives people into eviction, right? Um, mm-hmm. There are plenty of stories I can I can tell of uh, tenants here in Los Angeles, where I've most worked with, with tenants, but I continue to see this at the state level, of tenants who quite literally have rent debt of $100, of $50, just nominal amounts of rent debt that they owe, that then leads to a life-changing process, right? That process being an eviction. Um, and evictions, while I think normally people want to normalize them, we want to pretend as though they are just these run-of-the-mill run of events, you know, in the last 10 years, we have been able to learn a lot more about that effect that an eviction has on the livelihood of people, right? We know, we understand evictions now in the last 10 years in the broader public, right? Not among activists or organizers, not among the evicted, but among the, the kind of the general public and in the media, we now kind of understand evictions to be not just uh, the cause or rather be caused by poverty, but also themselves constitute a moment of immiseration, right? They constitute mm-hmm. a moment that has 
deep and long-lasting impacts on people's lives and livelihoods, making it more difficult for uh, folks not to be evicted in the future, making it more difficult for people to avoid homelessness, making it difficult for people to live kind of full, healthy uh, lives. And it can start, like I said before, with you having debt of all of $50, right? Uh, it can start mm-hmm. with some something as banal and ridiculous as that small amount of rent debt. Uh, with the Tenant Power uh, Toolkit, which is a toolkit that we developed, the We the Debt Collective, alongside the LA Tenants Union, the UCLA Luskin Institute on Inequality and Democracy, as well as the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, what we've actually been able to see because we are currently responsible for um, providing legal answers to eviction paperwork um, in LA County, primarily, but across the state, we are seeing that well over 80% of all of the evictions that we are responding to at the moment are for non-payment of rent. And so again, Mm -hmm. this idea of rent debt is very, very central to um, the question of tenancy. It always has been, and it'll continue to be so, as long as housing is too expensive, as long as housing is commodified, right? There are other secondary and tertiary effects, though, or connections between debt and um, housing and tenancy, really, right? Um, oftentimes, we don't explore enough how it, you know developers and landlords getting themselves into massive amounts of debt, uh, creating or partaking of very exotic financing mechanisms to be able to buy property mm-hmm. that they can then kind of draw a rental income from, how a lot of that debt that landlords get into, that a lot of that debt that developers get into, then has knock-on implications for the rest of us as well, right? That means the ever-increasing cost of rent, right? Number one, right? Uh, if you're going to be able to service the debt that you need to be able to take on, to build a new development, to be able to buy an existing development, whether it's old or new, you're going to have to be able to service that debt as a a real estate capitalist. And the way that you're going to do it is by squeezing uh, uh, working class tenants, right? Being able to squeeze every last drop, every last penny that they have to be able to do that. It also means in the this desire or in this in this attempt, really, this kind of ineluctable desire to draw more rental income out of tenants, it means that landlords have to pursue ever more onerous um, processes. They have to develop ever more violent processes, right, to be able to evict tenants. They want to do this because being able to evict a tenant means being able to bring in a tenant who possibly makes more money, who can pay their rent, can pay ever escalating rents uh, on a rolling basis. And so what that means is that landlords are themselves, you know, as any Marxist says, right, the capitalist, like the worker, right, has to or is being drawn into the same sort of processes the same, or being drawn by the same forces of capital, these imperatives that force them to do all sorts of things. Landlords, by the very nature of having to service all of these debts, are then forced, basically, to take on um, ever more um, horrible practices, basically, to either squeeze profits on one end by not making repairs in their buildings, right, by by really creating slum conditions in their housing, or by evicting these tenants or forcing the tenants through harassment to leave these buildings. And so, again, Mm -hmm. not only are tenants squeezed by the debt that they have to incur to pay ever-rising rents, Uh, the landlords, the real estate capitalists basically have to take on ever larger sums of, 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 you know, of debt to be able to buy these properties to begin with so that the process of accumulation, the process of exploitation really um, can continue. It it is the the snake eating its own tail here a little bit. Yeah. 
John was also speaking about this, how there's this, this chain of debt all the way up to the top and everyone is trying to squeeze a little more out of whoever is just below them. I felt like when I started to look at these capital stacks, it really helped me. The capital stack is what the developers call it um, when they have to assemble various forms of equity and debt in order to pay, you know, whatever it might be, $25 million to develop an apartment building or something. And seeing the terms of debt on, um, I, I've never been a banker or a finance guy, but but coming to understand how this works and how the it basically there's a whole you know stage sequence of who's get paid out first, who's gonna get get their money lost if there's if you know there's a bankruptcy or something, who's first in line, and then the rates and the terms that get set, especially when you have to go into like the private equity market or where the 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 rates are so much higher. It really did um, uh, change the way I was understanding the calculus of these housing developers and property managers where it's true. They've got creditors calling. And um, if, if their creditors calling, they they might have to hike rents or uh, it's, it's going to be their shirt. So um, I, I appreciate you bringing that to the fore. So let's talk about the debt collective for a minute. You you referred to the debt collective as um, the the first union of debtors, or at least in our modern context. So um, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a, a debtors union? Well, I should start by saying that, you know, in a way, joining the debt collective, being able to work for the debt collective really was kind of like a, 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 a kind of a, a bit of a weird secondhand sort of uh, return home, if you will. Um, a lot of the early kind of, you know, anti-capitalist organizing that I did, um, a lot of the activism that I did, you know, 10, 13 years ago was, you know, in and around at the time in the UK, the imposition of austerity by the the, the new Tory government. Um, and, you know, through that process, got to meet folks like David Graeber, who was one of the kind of the initial leading lights of uh, really this kind of this, this struggle against debt, right? What do we mean by the debtors union? Uh, this is a, a great question because, frankly, it's one that we in the debt collective wrestle with as well. In at a high level, we understand what that looks like. We know what that means conceptually, right? The debtors union is the the union of debtors, right? The collection of debtors uh, brought together as a class, fighting against uh, the, the their creditors, right? Because we understand that we have collectively quite a bit of leverage over those creditors under normal circumstances, right? What does that look like, right? It looks like uh, if you uh, have a bank uh, to whom you owe X number of billions of dollars, if you get enough of the debtors for that bank to hold and to be able to leverage that massive amount of debt that you have, but that for them is an asset, and you basically threaten to withhold that asset from them and or the return on investment of that asset, suddenly you find yourself with a lot of leverage, right? For tenants to use it in in that kind of conception, uh, given this is the space that I mostly work in, uh, you know, if you as a tenant are uh, uh, left to fight your landlord alone, uh, you are in, in in a pickle, right? You're going to probably lose a battle against your eviction. You're going to lose a battle for the negotiation of better conditions or lower rents as an individual. Uh, and you, your your small amount of rent is probably not that much relative to the amount of money and the number of assets that the, the landlord owns. If, on the other hand, you get together as a, a tenant and you form a tenant's association with the other people in your building, 
if that tenant association then joins other tenants associations for that same landlord's real estate portfolio, and all of you threaten a rent strike, right, to withhold your rent, suddenly you have a lot of leverage over your landlord, right? And I should say, as a little side note, something really exciting that we, we saw here in the LA Tenants Union recently, we saw that... Um, Landlords and 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 realist and realtors are. In, we saw an example in the wild of a realtor basically putting in their real estate prospectus for a multifamily home complex. They put in their a prospectus prospectus that the building was organized by the Los Angeles Tenants Union. Right. Suddenly, All this right. changes the calculus for real estate capital and the investment that possible investors might make in that land, in that property, right? So th that's the yeah. kind of conceptual nub of what we mean by a debtor's union, right? Getting debtors to come together to, to collectivize their demands and to use the leverage of the debt that, that for them is an oppressive sort of reality on a day-to-day -day basis, but turn it into collective power to use, to wield against their creditors, to make demands of these creditors help. In a in a in a better world, or you know, with enough organizing in the years to come, really to to you know make sure that these creditors don't exist, right? To abolish these creditors, to to yeah. you know, at the end of it. In practice, though, that means a lot of different things, right? And so, you know, on the one hand, you know, I've mentioned tenants unions as a form of debtors union. It means that we, the debt collective as an organization, have tried over many years and have succeeded really over many years in seeding different types of debtors unions for different types of debtors' struggles, right? Um, one of the more famous kind of storied, very early version of this was the Corinthian debtors' union, right? Um, Corinthi the Corinthians were a, a number of, of debtors, of student debtors, who uh, owed a ton of money to their uh, for-profit, uh, you know, university, to, to uh, Corinthian college. Uh, and they basically were fighting to cancel their debt because they felt that they shouldn't have to basically pay this debt because they felt it that it had been an unjust sort of burden that they had maybe had even been defrauded by their um, by their university by their college. That was a form of a debtors union that we helped basically uh, bring together, and in fact was one of the was the original sort of impetus or uh, foundational moments for what has become our national you know years long struggle to cancel student debt at the federal level, right? And so again, for us, that idea- And you all were talking about that long before presidential candidates or the Department of Education or Joe Biden were talking about that. A hundred percent. In fact, you know, if you ask, you know, our, our co-founders, Astra Taylor or, or Hannah Appel to talk a little bit about this, they always have this kind of funny story about the first time they had a big direct action demanding the, the cancellation of student debt like a decade ago and seeing the New York Times and NPR coverage of that protest and of the questions that these reporters were making of uh, the debt collective uh, organizers and, and those who were protesting, basically, uh, you know, ridiculing the idea that we would ever be able to cancel student debt. Like, this is such a ridiculous idea. It's an insane idea to think that we'd ever be able to do this. And look at us now, 10 years later, um, we have, we forced the, the, the Supreme Court to take up the issue entirely. So that is, I think, yeah. a testament to that kind of persistence, that kind of dogged persistence um, that has really kind of been a, an important you know, element of our organizing for, for now the, the last decade or so. Yeah. Well, let me ask about that. Like, and maybe I'll uh, bring David Graeber back in here. Um, he, he writes in his book, um, Debt, which everyone should read. Um, he, 
if I recall in one of the first chapters, he talks about there's one of this uh, paradoxes of debt, which is that it's ethical obligation to pay one's debts. That's something that society believes. You have to pay your debts. To be deadbeat on your debts is is a bad thing. It makes you a bad person. And we also believe that creditors are bad people. <laughs> to be a moneylender is, is, is also ignoble or unethical in some sense. So how can it be true simultaneously that, uh, that the creditors are bad and the debtors are bad <laughs> at the same time? And then we make a, a, some seemingly this really contradictory ethical principle at the heart of our society. So I'm curious to hear your reflections on that as someone working in this space and, um, and just about the sort of um, shame that people feel about their debts and the work that has to be done to um, politicize that shame and uh, overcome it together. Well, you know, kind of drawing from Graeber uh, himself again, and, you know, it's been many years since I last read Debt, the first 5,000 years. Um, you know, he starts the story by really laying out that debt has been a foundational sort of connective tissue between peoples in a society, in any given society, from the dawn of man, right? Really, the point being that debt understood as an obligation, as a social obligation from one person to the other is uh, as human as anything else, but, and to understand really that this idea of obligation, debt as obligation, right? That obligations are, are uh, the, the necessary connective tissue of society, that the moment that you sunder the, those connections, those linkages of, of obligations, you, have, you might as well have just basically sundered society as a whole, right? This, the way that society works is through a series of interconnected obligations. That there, it makes a lot of sense really to say, you know, if you don't basically follow through with these kind of social obligations that I have, that's a bad thing, right? That's a very kind of deeply rooted, um, you know, sort of moral argument that I think has a lot of, it makes a lot of sense, right? If I, you know, if we help each other through these things, if we collectively build roads together, then we should collectively make sure these roads are not being destroyed. Or better example I have for those of us who, who like public transit, transit a lot, you know, our taxpayers go to paying for beautiful trains, right? Uh, I once got kind of, uh, I had my, my fingers wrapped by a, an old Swiss woman when I was on a train and, you know, heading to Zurich many, many years ago. And, and because it was because I had my, my feet on the, 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 the seat right in front of me on this train. Uh-huh. And she turned to me, she was very, you know, nice about it. She was like, look, our taxpayers, our tax money basically goes to paying for these public goods. And we have these beautiful trains as a result of it. I'm asking you to respect it. It's like, look, to me, that's just like a kind of an example of how these kind of these different obligations really bind us together as a society, right? The problem of debt or with debt is the moment that debt becomes monetized and becomes this kind of financial cudgel. And especially when that financial cudgel is being wielded by people who don't feel any sense of obligation to, you know, wider society, the only reason they are in on this or for this is because they want to make money. They want to make a quick buck out of unproductive rentier sort of um, processes, right? So the, the issue isn't that I am obliged to, to, to help my fellow man. I'm that I, as a, as a member of society have obligations to wider society. The real issue is when you have, you know, JP Morgan basically breathing down the backs of people saying, if you don't pay uh, this mortgage because you lost your job, you know, tough luck for you, but I'm going to, I'm going to take your house over. I'm going to make you homeless. That is an entirely different sort of understanding of what that looks like. 
But I think that that is what is really at heart at the, you know, with the contradiction that you've kind of laid out, right? That debtors, that the, the sense of debt as a series of, of interconnected social relations obligations is old as time. But the increasing sort of financialization of these debts really historically over many hundreds of years, but especially in the last 40 to 50 years with literally the, this moment of financialization under neoliberalism has made that process even more acute or that contradiction more acute. It has made it, I would argue, more extractive, more violent than you know anything that we've ever seen. The difference, of course, is that we hide behind um, this, this kind of panoply of laws and policies that give this kind of process of violence the veneer of civilization, right? Um, so I think mm-hmm. that that is where that contradiction comes down to. You now, on the question of shame, any tenant organizer worth their salt will tell you that shame is such a big um, holdup, right? So this big sort of barrier that tenants face when they are trying to organize, right? Even if when they're just trying to do advocacy as themselves as an individual, it's a big, uh, you know, moment of of difficulty. Uh, why is that? It's because of what you just said, right? People, so much of the, the, the social narrative about your inability to pay your rent is really about how you are a terrible person who made terrible life choices. You maybe should have spent less money at the groceries, uh, you know, at the, at, the, at the grocers. You should have, you know, not bought yourself that one t-shirt that you wanted to at the supermarket. All of these kind of consumer oriented sort of um, critiques really then kind of come together into the sense of you were you were a bad person because you misspent your money and didn't pay your rent on time therefore you you deserve an eviction it doesn't matter for a lot of folks in the in the kind of that standard narrative that the rent that people are trying to pay is 50% of their income or more right it the idea is just in a very kind of crude way that you don't pay this debt therefore you are a bad person right it, again it kind of it kind of elides it must be your fault it must be your fault, absolutely. In in the in the broader debtor organizing space, we see this all the time, right? Uh, a couple of months ago, a few months ago, I was in Chicago for the Socialism Conference, um, and we we hosted a a debtors assembly, right? It's a kind of a, a common sort of tactic that we use in the debt collective, and a debtors assembly. A lot of organizers in other kind of spaces might recognize, you know, elements of it. It really is bringing people together into a into a meeting. And what it is, is really about giving people an opportunity to break through their shame and to talk about the debt that they hold, to talk about, you know, how that debt makes them feel, what effects it has, a material impact that it has, a material and emotional impact that it has on their lives. And really to talk about if, if they want, right, to talk about how like that, that even that process of talking about this, this um, debt, how it makes them feel, right? Like how does sharing this debt empower you? How does it make you feel um, about this entire thing? And, it, and I mean, it was super powerful. Like all of these debtors assemblies tend to be, I mean, people cry, people, you know, really have like a kind of a, almost like a, 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 a come to Jesus moment talking about this debt because sometimes like they say oftentimes, like I've never spoken about my debt. I've never spoken about the tens of thousands of dollars I have in student debt. I've never spoken to, to folks about the fact that I had my home foreclosed on. I never talked to anyone about the fact that I owe $150,000 in medical debt, that I had to go into bankruptcy. Even, you know, there was one story of, of a gentleman who was like, look, I never talked about the fact that I went to school, saddled myself with so much, you know, student debt that was really breaking my soul, but that eventually I would had the, 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 the good fortune, the, the historic luck 
of having a grandfather who upon his passing basically gave me, you know, I inherited from my grandfather sufficient money to be able to pay off my student loans. And now I want to spend my time. I want to dedicate my time to organizing around debt for other people who are less fortunate than me. Right. And so that breaking through that, that shame is literally kind of almost like step number one and getting people to think of themselves as political agents capable of change. Uh, it really is kind of necessary to break through it. It's not a battle. I should say that we always win, whether on student debt, whether on medical debt, whether on, on, on housing debt, right. On te- on, on rental debt. It isn't something that we always are able to achieve. And, you know, in, in, for any tenant organizer listening to this, I, you know, and especially for those who organize Latino tenants, you will always get a moment, we're in a building of 40 units, 50 units, 100 units. There's going to be that one tenant, that number, a handful of tenants who are going to tell you, es que yo no quiero problemas. I don't want problems, right? Like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to organize. I don't want to fight back. I don't want problems. And my job as an organizer, and I say this quite point blank to folks, is to say, the problem is already here for you. The problem is that you already can't afford your rent, that you're living in in horrible conditions and that your landlord's harassing you. The problem is that if you don't resolve this, you're going to end up either on the streets or having to move to a more expensive apartment far away from your social networks. What are you going to do when you can no longer afford to pay the rent that you're paying right now in a community where all the rents are going higher every single year? And I really kind of, so I use that as a way to say to folks like, look, the problem is already here. The problem isn't going away. The only thing that you have available to you is to, to fight back. Sounds like you're a pretty good organizer. Um, that's how you got to get into it with people. Um, so let's keep exploring then what are the kinds of um, consciousness that um, we can discover on, on the other side of doing that work. You know, the, the historic labor movement in this country has been organized around the notion of a working class, those who are forced to work for a living. More recently, we've been hearing tenant organizers talk about tenants as a class, those who are forced to rent in order to live. And now we're talking about debtors as a class, those who are forced to assume debt in order to survive. And I'm, I'm curious, like when we're talking about class formation, class consciousness for those below. I don't even know if we should call it a working class uh, because we're talking working, in debt, <laughs> renting. We can use working class as a shorthand, but like, w- what are the differences and the similarities between the, time, the kinds of class consciousness that get developed um, from looking at these different forms of, of class relationships? I guess just to be really pointed about it, uh, you know, I think the 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 history of the left is rich in labor organizing and we're very accustomed to thinking about forming working class identity and i i think we're all for that but um what is the same and what is different when we're instead thinking about um debtor's identity or tenant's identity in a class uh, kind of context uh, this is such an enormous question uh that to me brings up a couple of sort of sub questions and or kind of uh, subtopics, right? That you need to kind of unpack a little bit. Number one, it's like, what do we even mean by class in this context? And specifically about the process of exploitation and or let, let's call it extraction, right? Um, in mm-hmm. a modern capitalist economy, uh, number one. Number two, about like what you're calling kind of identity formation, really that what I would like consider is like the idea of like subject you know, formation, right? The, the creation of right. subjectivities of, of, of political action. Um, 
you know, the, the labor movement, its organizing task has always been to create the subjectivity, to reinforce the subjectivity of the worker qua worker, right? Um, the worker as a worker. And from that, basically, to be able to create the kind of the solidarities between workers necessary to make demands of the capitalist class and ultimately, hopefully, to abolish class relations as a whole, right? Uh, uh, or for rather for the worker, for the working class to abolish itself, right? That kind of um, orthodox notion. That is primarily founded really on this understanding of workers as the fount of, uh, of, of value, right? We are the ones who collectively, you know, will the world into existence. It is through our labor that uh, the goods and services that the, that society, um, you know, uses that we kind of enjoy. It is through our labor that these goods come to be. It is through our, our labor in other forms that, uh, this labor is able to, to move, right? That we are also the kind mm-hmm. of the, the art, the, 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 um, the arteries, the capillaries, the veins of the system that allow the, 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 the flow of goods on an international scale to, to go such that you can buy a German car or a Japanese car in the United States, or you can buy, you know, a Kobe beef in an American supermarket, um, or you can, you know, buy or watch American movies abroad, right? We are at the, at the, the foundational stone of this entire process as workers. This is why we have power. Our leverage is in our ability to be able to shut that down. Should we want to, through the strike, we can stop the production of uh, whatever you know said good on an individual sectoral basis or even firm level basis at the general level through a general strike, bring the whole system to a halt. Right? We saw a f- fantastic, a phenomenal series of examples of that just within one labor union in the last year. Right? With the United Auto Workers organizing first, organizing um, you know one of the largest, if not the largest graduate student strike in the country to make demands of the University of California system. But then you saw, of course, the historic um, organizing of auto workers um, that brought, you know, the strongest deal that, that, you know, workers have been able to to gain in many, many years. Right. And and so that, I think, you know, that to me is kind of like a very uh, important sort of conceptual and practical sort of way of understanding what that struggle has looked like historically, right? From that struggle have emanated these other kind of like bigger sorts of like ideas of what the reconstitution of society can look like, right? The idea in the history of socialism really is, is it emerges out of this kind of like fundamental contradiction uh, between labor and capital, right? Now, that contradiction is not the only contradiction within capital, or rather, maybe to put it a little bit less, maybe controversially, or maybe less um, uh, heterodoxically, is to say that there are other contradictions through which the capitalist experience, if you will, through which capitalist life is experienced by people, especially working class people, on a day to day basis. That contradiction. Please, you have full permission to be controversial at the expense of, <laughs> of Marxist orthodoxy, I should say. But yes, carry on. <laughs> I mean, and I would actually say like it's an it's a, an orthodoxy of people who just don't want to like you know keep the times. I, you know, I consider myself uh, very much in the Marxist sort of tradition as an individual, uh, yeah. but but to to really kind of hammer home that point, right? You know, ca- capitalist social relations. We should take a step back and remember capitalist social relations are totalizing. 
We say this, and yet we don't then kind of take the next step in thinking strategically about what that means, what implications does it have? If we understand capitalist life, capitalism to be a totalizing force that, you know, shifts our identities, that, that restructures what we mean by and or dissolves what we mean by by the family it is able to sweep away religions it is able to and or and or weaken kind of the grasp of these religions not entirely sweep them away but really weaken their political power um if it is able to to change the nature of our our you know our amorous and our sexual relations as individuals to to reconceptualize what it means to be a child even you know by even by creating new categories like teenage dumb if you will right because of capitalist imperatives if capitalism is able to do all of these different things, right? That means that capitalist life and capitalist social relations are constantly impacting on our lives in very different ways. And so therefore, the, the contradiction of capital itself or the, 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 the contradictions of capital themselves are myriad, right? And what that looks like in the housing space, it looks like tenants uh, not being able to afford their rent, right? It looks like I, as a tenant, have to pay someone else, a property owner, uh, a landowner, I have to pay them money to be able to keep a roof over my head over this basic human need, right? It looks like, as a debtor, it looks like you uh, having to go into his, you know, absurdly large numbers, uh, absurdly large sum of debt to be able to pay for basic health care. You know, like I constantly see bills from American, you know, people where they have to pay $55,000 were it not for their insurance just to be able to deliver a baby, right? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of absurd system that basically says that for you to be able to be able to have your basic human needs met, you have to go into this ridiculous amount of debt to be able to afford that. I need to pay you know, the equivalent of a quarter of a million dollars or more on over a four year basis to be able to afford to go to university that everyone tells me I need to do because that's the only way that the, that I can, you know, advance as an individual, but also as a society, we needed a well-educated workforce to be able to, you know, be more productive and therefore grow the economy. Right. Uh, you know, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And so really it is about that, that, that sharp sort of, uh, uh, you know, insistence that we place on people to say, you have to be able to go into this amount of debt, just to be able to live in very basic ways, just to be able to live. And on the other side of that transaction, on the other side, really, of that, of that relationship, are going to be those creditors, right? It's going to be your, your in order to live today, you have to subject yourself to domination, Forevermore. Forevermore. <laughs> I, I signed away my life picking up student loans when I was 18 years old, and I'm going to pay them until the day I die at this rate, unless something happens, unless our organizing wins, right? And so mm-hmm. the so to me, this idea of the, the debtor and the tenant, you know, a, a, as like subjectivities is really about looking at capital through another facet of our life, right? Now, from the kind of the, at the broad sort of, or at the very high, rarefied, very abstracted level of quote unquote capital, right? With capital C, it really means just taking another bite at the apple from working class people, right? It means that we can exploit you. We can exploit your labor and draw, you know, surplus value, get, you know, um, you know, profitability off of your work, me as a company, me as a capitalist, I'm going to be able to do that, get that money off you. But it also means though, that when you go home and increasingly, by the way, this is very much the case with company towns up, you know, a century ago, 
it is increasingly now the case, given the the the, the kind of the corporatization of of housing, given the creeping sort of role that private equity has had in not just buying companies or like investing in these corporations, but also like buying up land. It means that after you leave your workplace where you have basically enriched your bosses, you go home and in some occasions are even enriching that same boss or that same set of investors by paying two, three, four thousand dollars of rent for your housing. The same housing that might have like leaking pipes, broken windows, uh, the AC might not work, the, the heating might not work, what have you. And I have to be able to, you know, deal with the, uh, you know, the craven property management company that is harassing me for the the luxury of paying so much rent for so little value, right? So li- such little service, right? Um, and so what that looks like then again is experiencing the process, experiencing capitalism through the, the the lens of the rentier, right, or through rentierism when it comes to a landlord. It looks the same when you are again going into massive amounts of debt to be able to pay for your housing, to pay for your medical debts, to pay for you, your, your university, to pay for your lunch as a student. You know, one of the things that debt collective has been fighting, it's a, maybe a less sexy sort of thing or, or campaign for a lot of folks, but we've been fighting to abolish lunch debt for elementary school, middle school students. There are students who have literally not had their transcripts, um, you know, been issued or they haven't been able to kind of go through commencement or what have you at various levels of, of education, K through 12, because their parents owed, you know, $10, $20 of lunch debt. To you know, That's to the university, to, to their to their school district. I mean, it's that kind of absurdity of saying your life has to you know be paused. It has to be hit to be able to service this debt. Is just an absurd sort of you know end result that we have of really ensure of of insisting that 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 basic human necessity must be met by you as an individual. And if you as an individual have to meet that, then you have to go into massive amounts of debt to be able to do that. So again, to me, you know. The, the, the problem is still capitalism, right? The problem is still like, you know, like uh, a number of us who I was part of a, 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 of a collective for years that used to say like, look, capitalism is the housing crisis, right? That's absolutely the case when it comes to debtor organizing. Does that mean that there are not differences, therefore, right, in that process? Of course. Conceptually, there are differences because, you know, through debt, and through, you know, tenancy, we're not necessarily creating new value that has been then being extracted directly by the capitalist, right? On a conceptual level, there are differences here that we should be very, you know, conscious of. At the same time, there are things that are very, the, the, the through line of how we basically build a subjectivity around these issues is a, still a fundamental necessity, but it will have a different sort of look. It'll have different contours for different types of, of organizing, and so and you have a question coming on here, I'm sure. But but before you get to that, I guess what I'm trying to say with that is that, you know, when I am organizing a tenant, right, around their possible eviction, the similarities with labor art organizing are that we are looking at one single space shared by the people who live in this building in the same way that traditionally labor organizing and not in much less so nowadays, but Traditionally, when we were organizing the industrial proletariat, meant we're going to go to the site of, of extraction, we're going to go to the workplace where all of you are going into the same factory floor, and we're going to organize you on the factory floor. That is the, the kind of the premise of industrial capitalist union, uh, you know, unionizing efforts. Yeah. Traditionally, go to the shop floor. 
To me, organizing tenancy, the similarity is that we're also going to quote unquote the shop floor here, right? Which is you're going to the, the one building where both this process of extraction is happening, but also where the possibility of getting together with your buddies to then create a tenants association to fight back, it all happens in the same space. That is a similarity with union organizing for tenants. That is not the case for debtors generally. For student debtors, for a Corinthian college, for example, to use them as an example, they all went to the same university, but they fought back. They got together after the fact, right? After they had left that kind of single space that they shared. And so organizing that, organizing that, that subjectivity without that kind of same sort of physicality, that same physical presence presents both opportunities, but also very in, you know, serious challenges to how we organize. That is a very big distinction, really, between, you know, worker organizing and debtor organizing as whole, even tenant organizing on the small scale, right? Tenant organizing um, within a particular building. The, the, the similarities between tenant organizing and debtor organizing, the, the, they become clear, much clearer the moment that you're organizing across, for example, a portfolio, especially for a transnational and or uh, national sort of actor through a corporate landlord. Right, because your debt is someone else's asset, your future rent payment is someone else's asset. So the logic of the leverage and the intervention there is quite similar, whereas the logic of the, the worker strike is somewhat different. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. You were talking about, uh, you began that by uh, speaking of the sort of imaginary horizon of the uh, the maybe old school or uh, traditional Marxist labor movement that's the working class in the process of its own abolition through, uh, through class struggle. And it, it seems like while some of the practical organizing points are the same, others are different, and you laid that out very well, uh, it seems in the case of, of, of debtor organizing, um, the redemption narrative of the you know, dialectic machine going were and the, the relations abolishing themselves is a little more challenging to come by in the case of debt than in the case of work. Because it, maybe I'm missing it, but it feels harder to claim that the debt relations uh, contain the seed of their own abolition, or that debtors can simply put their hands on the means of credit in the way that laborers could put their hands on the means of production and theoretically come to own them entirely. Now, when we start talking about the means of credit, um, it, it, it gets very political and highly mediated in, in some ways. And now we're talking about the Federal Reserve. And, and, and then it also seems like perhaps... Um, these questions about debt, when you start filing back through the historical record, it just becomes quite evidently a pure power relation. 
Like there's there there's very little uh, redemptive here in the sense that there's some you know we can talk about value being created in the process of labor and whatnot. Really, this is about people who have the ability to extend credit and extract debt payments. Um, other people who do not have the means of having money now, and so they need to take on debt. So someone has the means, someone does not, and it's simply a pure power relation of one person sort of squeezing another. Uh, Am I oversimplifying it? I don't know if you're oversimplifying it. I do think that, you know, in practice, that isn't necessarily the case, right? So to me, the promise of, uh, you know, organizing debtors to abolish their, their debt and in the process to make demands really kind of build the leverage that we need to then go beyond that. I think that is about like, it, I mean, it's about, yes, like, you know, organizing, it's about narrative building. It's also just about horizon building and defining, right? I don't see a world where we win the struggle for debt that doesn't also involve, you know, labor winning in its struggles for, for, you know, in, in the, in the workplace that doesn't involve, you know, tenant organizing. It doesn't involve, it doesn't involve like a general also, I should say, or add a general sort of, uh, um, abolitionist sort of, um, set of demands, right. Around carcerality, um, what have you. And so for me, I think the problem becomes, and I think this is where a lot of people get hung up about this stuff is in thinking that, you know, in in making, defining, uh, arguing for the importance of this contradiction within capital, the debt relation within capital, that we are saying this as, as being in some way, shape or form, uh, mutually exclusive of other sort of sectoral battles, and or that the one it, that this is going to be the primary contradiction that we must sort of, you know, get past to be able to then, you know, get to the world beyond. And I, I don't think, that's not how this is going to work, right? Ultimately, if we're mm-hmm. going to move to another kind of world, if we're going to actually be able to win a world where people's basic needs are met for them, right? It's going to involve all of these other sorts of things happening too, right? And so to me, I think I, I think I just have a problem with the premise because I don't necessarily think that that's the way, right way of understanding it. I, I see debtor organizing as one of the kind of found, foundational elements of a broader sort of struggle for liberation, Right. Uh, what we often what we in the deck collective oftentimes call like a, a, a struggle for abolition, but really abolition plus. Right. Aboli- the abolition of the of the of the forces that that keep basically people um, under the thumb of capital. But that, you know, in so kind of confronting, we then build or can start to build, can dream of having this world uh, beyond these different sorts of oppressions, right, and exploitations, right? So I think that's the the, the first bit of the, the question. I have to admit that I've kind of lost the <laughs> lost being able to answer. Let's, the, let's, the, let's yeah. keep going there. Let's keep going there. So so um, what uh, what kinds of um, uh, what kinds of movements or political infrastructure do we need in order to do that weaving of the campaigns for the better rental conditions and the better terms of debt and the, you know, more dignity and rights in the workplace and our various other abolitionists and other social movement struggles. Like what, what do you see as necessary from where we are now to uh, continue doing the weaving that's already happening and then take it to another level of, of cohesion and, and shared consciousness? Before we, before I get to that kind of that practical question of like how we build the movement, I will also say there's a, another, I think, element to, to add here, which is to say, 
the reason why like the the kind of the debtor framework and or the tenant framework like the worker framework actually has something very palpable, very usable here. That is, I think it redounds upon to a positive sense to like labor organizing for tenant organizing, what have you is the simple fact that none of these, none of the victories that we're going to, that we want to achieve, they cannot be based or founded on this idea that we're simply trying to reform the system, right? A broad scale cancellation of debt towards, for example, making universities, um, free at the point of you know education or making healthcare free at the point of of service is really to make a permanent and lasting shift away from the power the constraint the profitability of capital in a particular sector right and the more of these victories that we win that we can achieve the more we are contributing to the collective chipping away of capitalist power capitalist social relations for the whole and so I think that is something I also just want to like very much emphasize. Us being able to, for example, as tenant organizers, chip away the power of corporate control over housing and forget it, just the, 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 the entire system of the financing, development and provision of housing is a means through which we get to chip away at the collective sort of um, system or the, the broad sort of totalizing system of capital that will have positive and long lasting effects for uh, for folks in the labor movement who are organizing to abolish the wage wage labor relationship, right? Uh, and in the same way that labor organizing against private equity bosses who are exploiting people at the workplace will redound positively upon tenant organizers who are also fighting the same people. So I, I think to me, it's not a question of either or. It's very simply a fact that if we're able to actually you know, get our ducks lined up in a row properly, we are able to fight the same enemy as a whole. We're just doing it from different angles. Now, in terms of the practical, you know, how do we build the ecosystem as a way I'd look at it, right, of, of those connections, like any organizing, organizing ultimately comes down to talking to people. That's all it is. It's it. We use a, a sexy word, sexy language and sexy framework to really talk about something as basic as talking to other people. Uh, it's talking to other people with a purpose, right? We're talking to them to try to get them to, to see how the, the issues that they are confronting that they're facing on an atomized, individualized level are not unique to them alone. There might be unique factors or, or uh, elements of it, but the broad strokes of the issues that they are facing are if issues that other people in their neighborhood, in their country, across the world are facing, that these are things that they can only address through collective struggle. And so really your job that you're try trying to talk to people about is getting them to, to join that struggle, right? To join that struggle. Once they've joined that struggle, to politicize, to educate you know, to do popular education, political education, so that we can learn collectively, learn together how we, you know, deepen that struggle, how the, the struggle that we're facing is connected uh, or imbricated with all of these other struggles and other areas of life, health and other parts of the world. Uh, and therefore to, to learn through this different process, the, the process of education, through organizing to advance our own idea of what we want the world beyond to look like. Right. So that is what organizing is right in a nutshell. So what does that mean in practice for us? Like if we're kind of having these discussions across sectors, it means, you know, having conversations on a continuous basis with labor right, as debtor organizing. We've done that. We have been doing that, you know, for the student debt cancellation fight. 
it would not have been possible to get to the point that we are at now, as grim as it might look right now in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, we we wouldn't have got to that point had we not uh, had very strong labor advocates. AFL-CIO, you know, was one of the big sort of like voices basically pushing behind the scenes to get this cancellation to move mm-hmm. forward. You know, we've that. worked hand in glove with the Chicago Teachers Union for, for years, you know, have very good relationships with them. This would not have happened. Our fight, our demand around debt cancellation would not have happened without that, right? In, in Los Angeles and across California, there are deepening sort of relationships between tenant, um, you know, nonprofits and the, the labor movement to make sort of you know, concessions around tenant protections of the state, right? To, to yes, to do it or to start off with initially, at least, um, you know, the bosses, your individual firm level kind of fights, but to use that as an, an as an attempt, as an, as an, an element of a broader sort of bargaining for the common good framework. In other words, uh, in using labor organizing to make broader social demands that go beyond the workplace and not to do mm-hmm. it just because, you know, it's a sexy thing to do, but because ultimately these other issues impact us too, right? If you are a worker and you just gained a 10% increase in your wage on a one-year basis from your, you know, your teacher's union, well, that it sucks if that 10% then is going to be gobbled up immediately by your landlord. If it's going to be gobbled up by the fact that university tuition um, is increasing at a much higher clip than inflation on a day-to-day basis, it's going to suck when that money is being, you know, uh, taken up by all these other kind of rentiers, all this other all these other kind of segments of life that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Again, looking at these other kind of contradictions of capital that people confront on a day-to-day basis, right? And so really, it's about staying in conversation with these different elements, these different movements. The Debt Collective, we consider ourselves as part of like the kind of the abolition, the struggle for abolition on, on carcerality. We consider ourselves as like obviously allies in the struggle around tenant issues, staying in conversation with them, but it also means strategizing together right? It, it does mean making arguments and having political fat battles, having an element of like kind of cross-pollination of education across sectors so we can understand how these things are connected, right? I mm-hmm. might know who my private equity, the private equity firm that, you know, my neighbors that own the housing next door to me, I might know who they are. I might not know everything else that they're getting up to. Like, for example, um, you know, be, they're, they're currently being sued maybe potentially um, for, um, you know, child labor, which is a thing that we've seen actually recently with some of these big corporate landlords, these, these private equity firms actually, that are on the one hand kind of screwing over tenants in our inner cities, uh, screwing over tenants increasingly on mobile home parks, screwing over tenants in smaller cities and suburbs across the country that didn't used to have, you know, this kind of corporate, these corporate actors gobbling up housing at the same time that same money is uh you know paying for um you know firms in uh i don't know in in the you know in in middle america that are hiring children to work in like chicken coops or what have you i mean these are Mm -hmm. real things that are happening literally right now we're in a there is a growing problem of child labor in this country it happens to be a problem that is being funded by the same people who are squeezing you know hundreds of thousands millions of tenants uh for their rent it also happens to be the same sort of investors that uh, are also, you know, paying for, or actually to use a more kind of a, a, a more direct sort of example, it looks like, you know, the UAW fighting for better wages, better conditions, increasing the number of, of workers who are covered by, you know, union contracts at, you know, different plants that are currently ununionized or not unionized in different parts of the country. Those same firms are also being, have been involved, have been caught or, or, or seem to be involved in 
uh, processes of like child labor, child exploitation, right? So these these things are not unlinked. They, they are absolutely linked. They are happening on a day-to-day basis. These are struggles that we just have to make be more intentional and in going out of our way to connect. This is where I think kind of organizations that see themselves as like, you know, broadly anti-capitalist or political outfits, it is part of the task of these kind of organizations to make these linkages across sectors where oftentimes those of us who have our head, you know, uh, we're, we're down in the trenches kind of fighting a particular bit of sectoral work. It behooves us constantly to, to be pulling back and asking the question of, well, who is doing what to whom here and to whom else are they doing other things that are bad that we would consider horrible and how can we bring them into this conversation? And the last thing I'll say here before uh, you know, we move on maybe to another question or if you want to ask like a follow through question or follow up question is as an example, if we're going to try to tackle, go after a corporate landlord at the national scale, even an international scale, suppose that we're going to plan to do that. Who are the people funding them? Who are the people whose financial who will be financially impacted by us going after these different organizations? And who and who else are they funding? What other kinds of uh, things are they are they funding here abroad? Are they funding you know I don't know um, horrible mining practices in in you know Central Africa? Are they funding factories in the occupied? you know, uh, Palestinian territories, what have you. These are things that become possible the moment we are, we, we take, we make the conscious effort to step back and, and make these links and then talk to the people who are involved. We, the debt collective are part and parcel of that ongoing conversations and many of these different struggles. And I think that is something that we actually have to get a little bit better at, right? It also means joining more kind of cross organizational entities, yeah. you know, we recently joined the progressive international, for example, um, to deepen our kind of international work, because again, these things are linked. Our struggle is the struggle of others. The struggle of others are our struggle too. It feels like we're moving in that direction overall. It does still feel that there's a gap between the people who are the most skilled practitioners of organizing and who are really in the trenches with poor and working class people and the people who are the sort of chief theoreticians who are uh, uh, enlightening us to all of the interconnections and sharpening and updating our theories about how capitalism works. But like, it does feel that we are getting closer to that destination you're describing and a lot of those relationships um, are being built. Uh, maybe I'll just ask a, a, one more kind of theoretical follow-up question on that, which is like specifically in the realm of finance, you know, there's been an outpouring of scholarship since 2008. I think a lot of people who are more or less our age, who are got very interested from an academic angle uh, on after the financial crisis and uh, are really seeking to understand the whole structure of the global financial system. And, you know, especially the Federal Reserve, which is the biggest bank in the world, the source of most dollars, the lender of last resort. You know, so you've got the modern monetary theory crowd. You've got a lot of other scholarship. You know, they've got the MMT critics. You've got the critical macro finance people. Um, I'm going to do a bunch of more episodes on this <laughs> next year, which I'm really looking forward to, to kind of let the let the the academic hair down a little bit. But um, I don't think it's an accident that there's so much energy here because clearly we're trying to understand how finance shapes our world. And that might have been gone a, a little understudied for a while um, uh, up until 2008. So I'm, I'm curious how much you individually or the debt collective institutionally is like investing in those conversations, um, paying attention to that academic research on the character of the financial system, you know, uh, and and how then it, that has bearing on the actual um, practical work of organizing. 
I mean, this is foundational to the deck collective. You know, we recently, um, oh, in the last like few years, actually submitted, for example, we contributed to, to a paper um, looking at, for example, the very question of like sovereign debt specifically in the past, in the, in, you know, in times past, we looked at municipal debt actually as a possible kind of like area of struggle, which really municipal debt is connected to these broader sort of systems or, or, or um, you know, circuits of debt that kind of impact us all, right? Personally, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a step back and just, you know, think through this. Like when I was kind of initially sort of like politicizing, radicalizing, what have you, many, many years ago, uh, to me, the story of what happened in Greece was so instructive, you know, with the with the the Greek bailouts, the austerity, all of that was so instructive of how all of these things, are, it's just like a chain of, of debt and also therefore a chain of exploitation all the way through, right? What the average Greek worker or poor person was facing was austerity that broke the back of the economy. It still has, you know, uh, you know, the purchasing power of the average Greek person today is still lower than it was prior to the to the Greek recession, uh, or rather to the to the Greek austerity packages and the whatever all that the, the the IMF bailouts, the European Union bailouts. The average Greek worker had their lives immiserated because their government was in hawk. To you know, to the to the debt markets, to all of these different uh, creditors. Those creditors, including the you know banks in, in Germany and then the the creditor core in France, you know BNP Paribas, you know Deutsche Bank, you know whatever you you name it. All of these Société Générale, they were they were in hock to all of these different sort of like banking lenders. Those lenders were connected through relationships of debt to other sort of lenders in places like Germany, for example, uh, smaller regional banks, the Landesbank, for example, who then uh, were had had basically gambled uh, with the savings of their local sort of populations in their small little towns in in, in Germany, where workers for Mittelstand, you know, factories were kind of storing away their money that was then being used to gamble on real estate in the United States being funneled through these kind of bigger sort of like banks in the United States to be able to push, you know, ultra low, temporary ultra low, you know, interest rates on poor black and brown um, homeowners would be mortgage holders who then use that money again to be able to to buy their houses temporarily and then promptly lose them in the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. That's that's a, (laughs) that is, that is a global, the, the global circuits of capitalism spelt out in ways that had very real you know, uh, links, connections, both in terms of the process and or the, the the cause of all this immiseration, but also in the possibility of struggle on the other end. And so what that looked like to me, like if I'm going to really kind of like use an evocative sort of image here, to me, the image of a, a black and brown or white working class homeowner in the United States who was foreclosed upon by their bank in the at the height of the of the housing crisis in 2000 you know 8 2009 who was pouring cement into the pipes of their homes as a way of like basically using this as a way of of, of saying you know to hell with you to, to to the bank right of of sabotage really to these people who were repossessing their homes so they could sell it on again later on to to kind of reignite the process of accumulation later down the line that person saying f you to their banks by pouring that cement into the pipes to make the, those pipes unusable to you know destroy the walls of their home and the greek workers who were coming together into you know, collectivities and communes to be able to 
basically ensure that people were being well fed so they could be, you know, make sure that because of the loss of their jobs, they could still eat at the end of the day. To me, these are two people, you know, the former uh, Latino homeowner in Victorville, California, and the, the the workers in Athens trying to create farmers markets where they can, or, you know, whatever, uh, collectives so that they can actually, you know, feed themselves at the end of the day. These two people are intimately connected by the same circuits of, of capital that immiserate both of them, that destroyed their lives, really, within the span of five years, you know, like this is happening to, mm-hmm. to both of these sets of people, right? And so to me, I think making Drawing out these connections is very, very much the work that we in the Debt Collective do. We have talked a lot about sovereign debt in the past. We've It has been part of like a lot of the academic work that we've done. It is actually something that I have a personal interest in pursuing a little bit more in the coming years through our relationships in the Progressive International. The Progressive International, of course, have been drawing attention, for example, to, to IMF conditionality for, for quite a while, uh, have a campaign around sovereign debt um, as a whole. And this is something that I have a personal interest in the debt collective kind of pursuing. But this is something, again, that we've been writing about for, for years. This is something we've been kind of like doing a lot of like narrative shift work around for many, many years. Ultimately, sovereign debt is the, it's really, in, in a lot of ways, I'd argue, is the closest that you get to kind of the, the broad sort of, uh, to, to tackling the broad sort of system of debt as a whole in the way that, for example, we joke about this all the time. It's like when we talk about going after the very biggest corporate landlords, we're like, well, you might as well be ta- you know targeting capitalism itself by going after like one of these very, very, very big players. To me, like the question of sovereign debt and the politicization around things like sovereign debt are a way basically of going after the very, very, very biggest money. But at the same time, that is not to say that the things that are happening on a day-to-day basis to you, the the individual person at the worm's eye level, that these that you are not also part of these processes in the way that I just laid out, right? You, the person who lost your home in 2009, are intimately linked, are intimately tied to workers in Italy who were immiserated, have been and continuously seen their lives immiserated by ongoing um, ordoliberal austerity in Europe in the creation in the wake of the creation of the euro. You uh, who are doing tenant struggles in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Florida, uh, you know, Louisiana, you are intimately linked to the same people who are doing this kind of work, th- these struggles against ev- evictions and dispossession in places like Spain who have been fighting Blackstone, literally the same landlord as many of the people who are listening to this you know podcast hopefully um today you are also intimately connected to people connected to people who are being likewise dispossessed off their land in places like brazil so so that is important it's not it's not just me saying it to to paint a cute pretty picture to like motivate people to have a different politics it is a literal material reality that the things that are happening to you by these bigger sort of capitalist forces are the same capitalist forces that are immiserating people exploiting people in other parts of the world and in different ways oftentimes and that image of the cement being poured into the pipes uh, i wonder how we can extend that to imagine um cutting off the circuits of uh, debt repayment on which the whole thing actually depends so second to last question, um, uh, what would you say are the uh, main barriers or bottlenecks that are preventing more and more successful debtor organizing? And are, are there any negative or counterproductive tendencies that need to be gotten over? On the bottlenecks, I think that what we've seen with the student debt fight right now is an example of, you know, not all creditors are the same creditors, Right. 
ultimately the provocation of a debtors union is to say we have leverage over our creditors, right? And with student debt, there's a, almost an element of like of chutzpah here that that the debt collective had in going after the biggest one of them all, right? Going after the state as a whole, the state that mm-hmm. that issues this debt that it doesn't even need to collect upon, right? Doesn't even need to collect like it's not gonna if if not a single cent of student debt is paid back ever again, it's not gonna affect the federal government in the slightest. Which there therefore kind of changes the calculus of what kind of leverage we actually have over the federal government here, right? The collect the, the collective leverage that we have over the federal government is in our political ability to sway these politicians who are short-termist and care about getting elected again, right? It is that being able to put the fear of God into them um, to some extent. And we're seeing it now. You know, you know, Joe Biden's popularity, his 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 opinion poll ratings are falling through the floor. They're falling through the floor floor right now, yes, because of what we're seeing um, in in Palestine at the moment with the, the with, with Joe Biden's kind of bear hug of um, of Netanyahu and all that. But really, what was the big sort of thing that we've been hearing consistently over the last year? We've been hearing from people in opinion polling and the like. We've been hearing folks say, "You promised to cancel student debt, and you have not." done so right so the leverage there is is different it's a political leverage a directly political leverage and not one of with direct financial leverage then becomes political one right so that's been i don't know if that's a roadblock it is i think something to for us to think about as we approach other kind of uh, uh, creditors and other kind of sectors um of the economy right if if we start building for example something like a medical debtors union or multiple medical debtors union we we have to think a little bit long and hard about who are the creditors against whom we are leveraging you know these these pressure points mm-hmm. right or we're, we're we're kind of squeezing these pressure points against whom we are leveraging all of our debts is it the insurance companies is it uh you know is it hospital groups right like the actual hospital owners uh, these are di- these are questions live questions that it raises for for our organizing uh, and for our organizers uh, as we kind of move through the process of organizing, thinking about building campaigns in these kind of spaces. It's the same thing, by the way, that we're kind of thinking about with the tenant organizing. We have been undergoing a process of thinking through what building a national campaign around renter issues looks like. And part of the, the conversation has been, how big do we want to go? Who are the quote unquote creditors and or the landlords we're going to try to go after and why, right? And and in choosing these landlords, how does that affect the kind of campaign that we can build? Who are the constituents? Who are the the subjectivities that we have to you know that we have uh, that we have to kind of form or shape uh, on the ground through our organizing? And what does that look like? And, and to give you an example, organizing a working class or poor Latino tenant living in South Central Los Angeles is a different kettle of fish to me organizing. Well, I don't know how much money you make. I don't know anything about your personal finances, but you are a white person who is very well-educated. Organizing you is a different task than organizing someone like my mother, right? And Mm -hmm. being aware of that is very important to any organizing effort, but it very much is a kind of a, 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 a strategic choice that we have to make in deciding which actors to go after and which not to go after as the deck collective. And so that, that I think is one of the, I wouldn't say a roadblock, but definitely a challenge, the organizing that we're doing. There are obviously like roadblocks at the moment around, you know, student debt, right? The, the roadblocks being obviously the courts at the moment, 
I expect that any successful campaigns that we do around housing, medical debt, you have, you know, what have you, is going to end up having the same sort of structural uh, limitations that we have at the moment because ultimately we live in a uh, a capitalist society, red in tooth and claw. Uh, a we are presided over by a uh, you know a political class so craven, so beholden to their uh, you know funders. And more importantly, not just their funders, the people who are going to hire them after they leave office, right? Because of the revolving door when they go to join their consultancies, when they go join as a member of the board at the Carlisle Group. Uh, you have that issue. And then, of course, you have a deeply ideologically committed Supreme Court that probably is not going to get any better uh, over the, the coming years. If, God forbid, Donald Trump were to win in 2024, you know. All bets are off, right? And then, of course, you have the kind of the lingering sort of, you know, political problems with, you know, if the Republicans were to advance and get enough, uh, capture enough state legislatures, the the horrible possibility of a, you know, of a national constitutional convention or what have you to amend the constitution. I mean, these are real political sort of roadblocks that we could that we face that are very big. We do get to cha- like to to think through these problems. We have to think through these problems, knowing full well, in my view, I'm very optimistic about this i'm pessimistic about the, the the political system as a whole i'm optimistic about the fact that actually on on a on a day-to-day basis most people are are genuinely good people who just want to live their lives who want to you know do well they want to send their kids to to get educated who want to keep a roof over their heads they want to buy a few nice things here and there and those folks are winnable we can we can bring them into our movement and while they might have all the money and they might have the political system as it's built right now we have the people and that's that's what matters more right uh, I can't remember the second leg of that question, but I know the one about the obstacles. That's, that was the one. Yeah, the, it was about negative tendencies, like like wrong ways of doing debtor organizing right. that uh, need to be rooted out. Um, I, I don't know if you'd add anything about that. The debt collective, the strength of the debt collective, but sometimes kind of a little bit of a something that holds us back a little bit is that it, you know we're a bunch of nerds. The Deck Collective probably has the highest concentration of extremely intelligent people that I've ever worked with ever. Like, honestly, it's just, I'm constantly shocked. I'm gobsmacked by just the, 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 the level, the tenor of conversation, debates, you know, whatever that take place in that space. I mean, I always, I'm just like, who, who are these people? Right. At the same time, that, that could be, that could be sometimes a challenge where people want to think through everything and they want everything. They, they let per, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. So for all of my colleagues who are listening into this, love you guys, but stop overthinking everything. Um, and then in general, when it comes to like debtor organizing just as, as a whole, it's always kind of falling into the trap that, and you know, folks like Astra Taylor and, and Hannah Powell will say this, some of our co-founders, Jason Wozniak, you know, they, they will say like, look, we've tried a lot of things and we failed a lot of times, right? And it's because oftentimes we we look at the next big sexy thing that we know is a real problem, but we don't think about how to organize in in um, in the wake of that or how to organize into the breach, right? Uh, the, the, the red wedge needs to be able to find the proper space, right? And so as an mm-hmm. example of that, you know, I've, I've been saying this to... Maybe it's less about the debt collective or debtors union organizing, but more about general issues with like problems that we confront right now that we have to kind of tackle through organizing climate change. Talk about being a little bit controversial. Uh, You know, I, I, I sometimes think that the issue with climate change as, as we organize around it, and this is more like a, uh, a challenge and, and, and a conversation I want, I've been having actually with more people who do climate work in the last six months The problem with climate change is that 
it is because it is that because the constituency for it is quite literally all of humanity, it quickly becomes no one's constituency, right? It is so big and it affects everyone. There is not a, the, the single biggest crisis facing humanity is climate change. But because of that, building a subjectivity around you as a human, being able to live within the fabric of life, right? Like literally wider life, being able to live within the web of life, being you, you as a human being existing in the web of life, that is, that is what makes your, that is the foundation for your political subjectivity around the climate. That is a very, very difficult, if not impossible, but extremely difficult thing to organize around, right? And why I'm more convinced more than ever before, that the way that we organ that we must organize around the climate is to, you know, because it is something that affects all of humanity, is to bring out all of the ways in which climate change is going to impact us in different elements of our life. It looks like it through green financing, it or or not. It looks like things like uh, the kind of workplaces that we're going to work in. You know, mm-hmm. how do you organize auto workers, knowing full well that this is an industry that is one of the biggest sort of contributors to to you know greenhouse gas emission emissions? How do we organize industrial life generally as a worker, whatever? Um, when these are things that we have to worry about as a tenant. You know, like, how are we going to be able to, uh, are the processes that are meant to, you know, improve our cities so they become greener through more public transit, through, you know, kind of denser housing, what have you, is that going to be at the cost of green gentrification, right? Where people, poor people are going to get pushed further and further out to actually the, the places that will become uninhabitable with time out into the deserts of California, for example, so that wealthier wider folks can can live in the inner core and enjoy all of the amenities of of you know of this green life that is a a real problem that i think we're not being i think realistic about but it's why it takes if you will to use a language an intersectional approach to these issues and that i think is how we're going to tackle climate change and so to me Using climate change as, as an example, it's that kind of danger of not always being very clear about where can we intervene, how can we intervene. In the Debt Collective, we have a lot of lessons that our older, you know, our founders, our older members can can talk about, right? Like just really about where we kind of went wrong. We tried something, it didn't work out. The good thing is you can always learn from your, your mistakes. And so that, uh, you know, a failure is also an, a moment of opportunity for me. Yeah. Um, well, love to talk more about, you know, I, I was a climate organizer for 15 years and then now I've been moving more into ha- into housing because again, it was like, uh, made my attempt successes and failures of, uh, having a intervention on the federal level around the issue of quote unquote climate. And then it's like, uh, it, it's come to a place of like, okay, we need a little bit of a more digestible uh, angle from which to approach this. And when we think about housing, it's like, and in, in the place where I live, it's literally like, where am I going to live? Where are my friends going to live? Where are the people on my block going to live? Are we going to die of exposure in the next heat wave? Or are we going to have secure housing for the next 50 years that we can count on? And are we going to be displaced in the midst of the next climate disaster or the next wave of gentrification or economic redevelopment? Or are we going to, again, have the housing security to get to uh, uh, Claim this place and uh, you know build a, a a beautiful life here. Well, how, um, how old is your building? How old is the housing that you live in? 
Uh, this building is around 100 years old. Okay. <laughs> I live in a house that's 100 years old. Look, in the lack of insulation, the lack of double glazed or triple glazed windows, the, you know, the in a lot of older housing, the lack of air conditioning, the lack of heating. I mean, I can go on and the, the you know, leaking uh, pipes in a, in a state like California that is prone to drought, that's going to become worse and worse with time. These are real, real challenges. This is, this is the climate seen through the eyes of the housing crisis and and where it becomes the housing crisis in this in this chain is if you are a landlord or a developer you're like well to be able to pay for uh you know the new pipes and the double glazed windows and the electrification of your home and the new central heating and air conditioning that's going to be necessary when when it gets to 120 degrees increasingly on a, on a more regular basis in your part of the world you're gonna have to pay for it Right. And if you don't, you're going to get evicted. This is to me, that is, that is the climate crisis. That is the housing crisis. And this is where they meet. And, you know, that twain is meeting all the, all the damn time. It's going to get worse and worse with time. We talk about in LA, for example, LA, this is both an, a, a point of pride, but also a point of, 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 you know, concern for me. LA is the biggest is the is the city with uh, undergoing at the moment the biggest transformation on its public transit anywhere in the country. Like it is, we we have been we're spending billions of dollars to build a metro system out of nothing. You know, while the New York metro system is crumbling and other kind of cities are kind of trying to figure out how to like you know do this, we're we're doing it right. It's exciting that we're doing it. The problem, of course, is that. Just like in the same way that the creation of public transit in this very city, when we had good public transit a hundred years ago, was considered to be an investment opportunity for realtors, for for developers, for land speculators. I mean, quite literally, the red lines, the people who own the red cars, the the, the quote unquote public transit system in LA at the time, they were also real estate speculators. And so, what they would do is they build new red car lines out into the suburbs because they owned the land around it and they knew that the extension of public infrastructure like transit would increase the cost of land, the value of the land that they owned. It was a real estate speculation uh, you know, scheme just as much as anything else. Nice hustle. And, and, in, and in fact, the vast majority of capitalism today seems like a little bit of a real estate scam. You know, uh, I don't know, universities are landlords at, with a little bit of an educational institution attached to it. You know, hospital groups are landlords with a little bit of hospital services kind of connected to them. Uh, everything like the, the is like real estate speculation all the way to the, you know, all the way to the bottom and so to me it's like the, that threat is a real one right now where yes we're building all this public transit that hopefully the more and more people use it will get people out of their cars which should be beneficial on that that side but the problem is if the people in in creating the conditions for real estate speculation in these communities in black and brown areas where you're suddenly putting a subway stop what does that do it jacks up the cost of land, the value of the land, because suddenly landlords are able to say with their realtor buddies, like, oh, wait a minute, this, this can, we can now build a more, you know, bigger units on this, uh, on these lines because of transit oriented development, you know, policies, we can do this, but what is it like resulting in? It's resulting in, yes, the construction of new housing on transit lines, that housing is deeply unaffordable to the people who rely on public transit. What's the point of building a $4,000 unit next to uh, an expo line train in Los Angeles if the person who you know lives in that unit is going to be driving, you know, a, a BMW five series, what ha- you know, what have you, I just think it's these kind of links are cannot be lost on us as we're doing or trying to build an alternative to quite literally an extinction level event. 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, uh, barring an extinction level event uh, I- I- in the immediate future, um, uh, uh, <laughs> which I am wishing for, I'm uh, just kidding. Um, uh, g- give us a um, <laughs> uh, come on, meteor. Um, give us an optimistic account of um, how um, debtor, but also tenant organizing, um, might progress over the remainder of this decade. What debtor organizing here is going to look like over the next decade is going to be rent debtors, if you will, tenants, you know, essentially winning the argument for the decommodification of land. It's going to look like, you know, us essentially pointing to the fact that shelter is a basic human need that must be met by wider society, right? That we as a species need shelter to live. And so what that the optimistic case is we make the demands and we win the battle for the decommodification of land. It looks like in the next decade, us taking on some of these kind of bigger kind of, you know, uh, corporate landlord entities, but also the, the, the real estate capital, right? Real estate money as a whole that is essentially ginning up these kind of processes to begin with. It means like us along the way fighting with, the, the landlord lobbies, the realtor lobbies, all the banking associations, the chamber of commerce, all of these kind of political outfits that are basically that are, you know, hook, line and sinker. They, in fact, they, they are all on a on a, a, a drug addiction, right, if you will, with real estate speculation. It means being able to confront that and and basically put a, a halt, bring to a halt the profitability of real estate as a whole. That is ultimately what we need if we're going to get to a point where decommodification is even possible. It looks like in the next decade, us directly confronting, you know, uh, yeah, insurance companies. It looks like confronting hospital associations. It looks like confronting, uh, you know, the the lobbies in this country that make it so that. like confronting the pharmaceutical industry, all of these institutions who benefit from the fact that Americans have to go into absurd levels of debt to pay for absurdly expensive medications, to pay for absurdly, prohibitively expensive, um, you know, medical services, such as having a child or, you know, just fixing a, a, a broken bone or what have you. To say nothing of things like cancer and, you know, serious long-term or fatal, you know, illnesses um, or conditions, it means like us basically change, uh, basically turning the tables, the power dynamic around, organizing around the basic sort of demands that people make around their inability to pay, right? It looks like us organizing against these institutions that benefit, that profit handsomely from the fact that healthcare in this country is above and beyond every other country in the world, the most expensive sort of medical system in the entire world, mind you, for very terrible, you know, results, right? Like, yes, a lot of people get really great healthcare if they are very well insured or if they have, you know, deep pockets. Um, In fact, you need both these days. Very very good insurance can tell you no, right? They can say, I'm not going to pay for X. This is an experience that a lot of people um, encounter. And so unless you have these deep pockets, you constantly find yourself making choices that are, you know, very bad for your health. It means us basically putting a stop to that process too. It doesn't mean, I hate to say it, it doesn't mean winning. <laughs> it doesn't mean 10 years are going to win full decommodification. It doesn't mean of housing, medical. It doesn't mean the, the full, ca- it means, you know, not just the cancellation of student debt, but also, um, you know, creating um, fully public universities, universal public education for all, Right. Uh, it doesn't mean winning these battles necessarily in the next decade, but I think it means making a decisive set of steps in that in that direction. 
we don't have that much time, right? We don't have it for our own individual lives. We don't have it for, again, the broader sort of species even at this point. Um, but I do think that we have some time still to be able to, to make some changes, you know, yet to come. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Renee, this is fascinating, really excellent conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Folks, that's going to be our last episode for the year. We're taking a several-week break, and we'll be back in mid-January. Make sure to set your podcast app to push you notifications when we have new episodes. And we'll be back, I think, in the third week or so of January, but you'll get that push notification, no worries. If you're still doing your end-of-year giving, please support Convergence on Patreon uh, to allow us to produce more audio content here on the Hegemonicon and on Convergence's other shows. I hope you all have a wonderful winter holiday season and a happy new year. I'll see you in 2024. Thank you. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights.